Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Horderbaum, and this episode is brought to you by UFF, the Firefighter Wellness Program on a mission to make the best job in the world a healthier one. Go to primalosophy.com slash UFF to get started. Nick Littlehales is the author of Sleep, The Myth of Eight Hours, The Power of Naps, and The New Plan to Recharge Your Body and Mind, and leading elite sports sleep coach who's been redefining sleep for over two decades. Nick, thank you so much for taking the time to be on my podcast today. Absolutely, my pleasure. So how did you go from former golf pro and betting industry marketing guy to one of sports' most unconventional and interesting careers in the late 1990s? I just fell into the sleep industry because I was bringing up a young family. It wasn't a particular choice. It was just to generate income um, because I'd sort of given up on being an elite athlete, as you pointed out. Um, Along that journey, I ended up um, becoming the international sales and marketing director of a big company called Slumbland Internationally. They basically made comfort products. Um, I was involved in setting up the first UK Sleep Council um, and the chairman of that for a while. I'd just been everywhere, just looking at sleep and working alongside some cl- clinical professors and everything else. And whilst I wasn't academically or clinically focused on sleep, it was just, I was just interested in it for two reasons. One, it was taken for granted. Another one, it's not a performance criteria. When in all the areas I used to go, uh, you could never find a definitive approach. Um, there was sort of general things of get your eight hours at night and don't eat too late and the temperature of your room and things like that. So even when I was working alongside clinical professors, you know, doing things in a different guise, I, I couldn't really get into my head how it's so important, this is this health pillar, but there was just no definitive guide. And when you look at all the the varying schedules and uh, occupations and parenting and humans sleeping all over the planet in different ways. It was sort of, I was, was a bit fascinated by that. And anyway, I just decided I needed to move on sort of in a midlife crisis, maybe in my early forties to go on and do something else. And uh, it just so happened that my UK office was uh, in the Northwest in the UK, which was uh, in Manchester, And I happened to do one or two little quirky things like, you know, sponsor a local football team shirt. Um, And that got me involved in having some conversations in the world of football. Um, Just because I wrote the checkout, that enabled me to have um, sort of conversations with a manager at the time called Sir Alex Ferguson of Manchester United. Um, And we started having some dialogue. Uh, It was all about recovery. And that led into some conversations that led into um, working with the national squads that, and then other premiership squads. And then suddenly one day I just read in the media that, you know, the, these premiership football clubs have got a sleep coach, mm. uh, which they found quite fascinating. But that was obviously me. And as you said, that was two decades ago, back in the late 90s. It was a completely unusual title. Uh, there was no... There was no job. <laughs> I had to sort of make it up. And two decades later, um, here we are talking to you. How did you persuade Ferguson that his players' sleeping patterns should become a higher priority? The football club and Alex Ferguson and the physios and the coaches, of course, they're all sleepers because they're humans. But when I started to sort of ask you know, questions about how they approached recovery with their players, Um, basically they didn't do anything and it's very much something that's done in their own homes or in hotels so whilst they were looking after the individuals in and around the training ground and everything else when they're playing um, the whole thing about recovering sort of when you're asleep was not really of any interest so it's only when I actually was asked to do something with one of the players that resulted in some success factors but really sort of started to open up the manager's mind as to there could be some real performance factors in here, but also to protect the players. So it was really just his open-mindedness to new things. I didn't really know what I was, while I was doing, but it was just at a particular time when there was a lot of focus on Manchester United. Um, 
and there was a, a lot of focus on possible things creeping into our world like phones and technology and different types of schedules maybe that we're going to be looking at. And it's, uh, it really just started there for no other reason. It wasn't to persuade him. He just thought, actually, because we do nothing in this area, then why wouldn't we look at it? He saw your success with the United defender, Gary Pallister, whose back injuries eased once you discovered that the player was sleeping on a mattress that hampered his injury treatment, correct? So it was because that's really where my, my competence was focused in a sense, although I've been studying and researching sleep um, in all my career in the industry. But my key competence was around designing products like mattresses and things like that. And so it was, it was a simple little thing, really. And you would even help these elite athletes find the best hotels for sleep and even creating sleep kits for them to travel with. Can you say more on these kits? Yeah, it was something uh, along that journey. It was around 2008-9 when I got involved with uh, British Cycling in the UK. And uh, there was also a professional team called Team Sky born at the same time under the same coaches. And they were challenged over a period of uh, running into the London 2012 Olympics, a period of sort of like five years to, to make cycling far more significant in the UK and create a Tour de France winner, British born. And all they could do really was to have a strategy about the aggregation of marginal gains, which was all these little 1% factors. So they got me involved as part of that process we, I was able to bring everything that I'd learned to create a sort of technique and approach called the R90 technique, which is recovery in 90-minute cycles. We could bring in knowledge and awareness and including that you can actually sleep anywhere on anything, any time as a human being. But if we could get their environments uh, a little bit more tick-boxed in their homes, we can then look at when we're traveling in hotels on grand tours for two or three weeks. And we started to look at how we could impact to create more familiarization. So we get the kit right in their home, and then we'd take single versions of those in a kit bag for each particular rider, take it on a tour, set it up in each room, and move it to the next hotel room. Because we were putting elite athletes into you know everyday hotel rooms when any, everybody sleeps. So we looked at cleansing the room down, high particle filters, blackout blinds, lights, and their own sleep kit, which just went on the floor. And it was those sort of little things that are a bit new to the world of sports. You know, they look at everything else, but when it came to this, it was kind of, what are they doing? Um, but now it's far more commonplace. Why is it important to know our chronotypes and how do we spot these genetic traits, whether we're morning people or night owls? Part of the journey, which uh, is sort of key sleep recovery indicators, and I believe there's sort of seven of them. And number one is just tapping circadian rhythms into your browser and just getting something you should learn about at school and from parents, which is this process that goes on on our planet every day, which is the sun rolling around, creating light, dark and temperature shifts. And we're completely should be synchronized to that process as human beings on this planet. And that little bit of understanding takes you to another bit, which actually there are two types of human, and that's a chronotype, and that's a little genetic twist. And it basically means that if you have two human beings living outside all the time on our journey on this planet, and the sun comes to rise, daylight, and inside the daylight there's an energy uh, wave called blue light, that will stimulate a little gland in your brain called the pineal gland to produce serotonin. And serotonin tells the brain to unsuppress everything, mood, happiness, all sorts of things. When the sun disappears and that blue light goes away, then that same gland creates melatonin. And melatonin tells the brain to suppress things down. So within a 24 hour rolling cycle, it's quite critical about our under and over exposure to light to function at our best and recover from that process easily. So all you've got, two human beings, one is a morning chronotype, a little genetic twist, the other one is a nighttime owl genetic twist. And as the sun comes towards the horizon, the morning type starts to produce that serotonin really quickly. 
and becomes active and functional. The nighttime person is about a sort of two hour phase delay behind that process. So that, that serotonin is not being triggered so quickly. So that's why you have two chronotypes and you can camouflage it, you can ignore it, you can override it in all sorts of different ways, but it's there. And the more you can spot, because it's very easy, you know, do you like, to, are you hungry when you wake up? Do you like to wake up early? Is the best part of your day the mornings? Do you like the evenings? It's very, very simple. You can, you can actually spot it. And it's important with partners, colleagues, bosses, your skills and everything else is to have a technique that protects you from the types of things that you are doing as far as your occupation and lifestyle, rather than just rolling through it. And your brain is constantly adapting all the time. And that's why people struggle with things like multi-schedules and everything else, because they're, they're all trying to do the same thing at the same time. But if you know your chronotype and you're going to be asked to do something at a particular point in the day, you can do something beforehand, during and even after just to protect yourself, which is quite key. And the University of Munich chronotype questionnaire, is that a good place to find out your chronotype? Yes, it's going to ask you some very simple questions, uh, which you can just ask yourself, but it'll ask you some very simple questions. Uh, and it's almost like before you've even answered the first two questions, you start to realize, because it is your, your and the way you answer the questions determines the answers. So you can almost work it out yourself in many respects. But it's a good place to start. Should the AMers schedule important stuff in the mornings and the PMers in the afternoon? In an ideal world, you know, in elite sport, we've been making these subtle little changes as schedules have just become far more demanding. I think it's, if you have complete control, then ideally you would, because PMers would really think about eight, nine o'clock, or even a bit later to start their day, and they would eat breakfast later because of that start of the day, and they would be active midnight and beyond. Um, the AMers don't do it, but I think, PM, there's a lot more PMers around, I think, than AMers, but they live in an AMers world or a multi-schedule world. So I think it's kind of, it's not trying to, you know, change everything that's going on, because if you're in a very dynamic occupation where you don't really have, you know, too much control because you're reacting to events and having to use multi-shifts. And that's why the R90 technique um has really been so successful because whoever it is and whatever they're doing and whatever challenges come their way, they've got a technique in the back pocket that really protects them so they can have more sustainable, consistent levels of recovery. And one of the biggest disruptors to sleep, being able to sleep, is worrying about it. And it comes in all sorts of levels. So if you're losing out on sleep, you worry about it. If you're not sleeping all the way through any period, you worry about it. If you're not feeling energized from the time, you, you worry about it. So it's, it's, it's a great place to get a more natural process. And if you've got very hectic schedules around you that constantly change, then there is actually a technique out there. You mentioned the book. Within that book, um, the technique is there to help anybody who's got almost sort of non-human schedules to deal with. And it's really important that point you brought up about recursive stress. I think about that all the time at the firehouse going into the night, you know, you're going to be up a lot. How much more suffering is brought on by the stress of not sleeping than the actual sleep deprivation itself? We've done a lot of little things. It's just about changing, you know, that, that clever little word mindset. And within any organization, they sort of like, well, we've not done this before, so we're not going to do it in the future. And you say, well, hang on a minute, because there's a group of people there like firefighters. And within that, their, their social lifestyles and behavior has been changing quite rapidly. They're very much in that 24-7 global world and social media and all sorts of things. And within that, you've got that occupation of having to react when you have to react. So when you actually need to respond, the recovery element of being able to take time out and create little recovery moments because you don't know what the next four or five hours might bring to you. So you can't really plan ahead, can you? So it's always like, here's a moment. And if we can nap it out, if we can CRP it, 
and get that level of multiphasic recovery, then when we're asked to higher achieve, we're going to a much better place and we'd probably be better at that particular task and also how we come out of that task for the next one rather than just constantly just waiting to perform and then it happens, you don't know how long it goes on. And I think that's why, you know, you see a lot of, a lot more addictive behavior um, because there's so much more access at the end of your fingertips to, to so many things that you can quite easily, if fatigue and pressure is on you, you can just jump in yourself, tap it in there, find things, start taking things like sleeping tablets, melatonin supplements, caffeine things. You can just jump in and do all sorts of things in your own personal way. And I think that's what I always advise anybody is once you start going down that route, then it's going to get worse and bad. For those who are not familiar with the R90 technique, when you're coaching these athletes or just regular people, do you tell them not to worry about eight hours just to get five 90 minute sleep cycles a day, no matter what order they're in? Yeah, I think it's just, you know, there's no, there's no argument about within a 24 hour rolling cycle that you should have around 30 odd percent of that, you know, I get eight hours within a recovery state and sleep. But when you actually look back at our history as human beings, you know, we ever only started to try and sleep in what's called a monophasic block. And that's everything in the nocturnal phase. Uh, once we invented electric light up until then, we were so much more reliant with the circadian rhythms, which has not changed today and will never do so is that we always slept in a multiphasic way. So when you apply that to the crazy schedules in sport or the, the crazy demands that we put on ourselves within the fire services and frontline workers, it's so you do have to think about it, that how many, how many opportunities have you got to sleep for one block of eight hours all the way through without disturbances? And you sort of go, well, if I'm on multi-shifts, it's never gonna happen. If I'm doing this, it'll never happen because I've got no rhythm and pattern. So that's why you can use, you know, as you pointed out, five 90-minute cycles gives you that 7.5 hours, but you can actually look at it in a very specific way to, to maybe some periods, it's just three cycles back-to-back, -back, uh, you know, underpinned by maybe a 30-minute cycle there and maybe a 90-minute cycle there because you're off duty or whatever it is. A 30 minute. So you just use the natural rhythms of the day to create these little moments. And once you take the emphasis off it, your brain will just take over because it loves rhythm, pattern and harmony because it's the sun going around the planet. It's about two particular hormones and it's about the brain and bodily functions. Everything else can do what it likes. <laughs> So if the most important sleep window occurs at night around 2 to 3 a.m. in accordance with our circadian rhythms, you say there's also useful windows in the day. When do these windows occur? Is it whenever fatigue sets in or what? The sun is starting to rise from around 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, right? Because it's 1 a.m., 2 a.m. It's not just because it's dark. It doesn't mean to say the sun is coming back. So once you start getting towards that sort of sunrise spot, it's like when you wake up, if you get a lot of stimulus of blue light from the daylight, which is much stronger than anything else, unsuppresses everything, makes you really active. So if you think about four phases of the day, so one is sunrise into midday, lots of light, midday into sunset, moving towards diminished light, and then diminished light in phase three and dark in phase four from midnight onwards. So when you look at that, the two other, you know, in a biphasic approach would be a shorter nocturnal period at night. You'd use midday, which is the next natural recovery period, sort of around the 12, 1, 2, 3 o'clock area, which is a broader area, sort of siesta time, that sort of thing. The other one is early evening, late afternoon, early evening, is another one where you'd normally take a shorter break, maybe of 30 minutes, because that's 30% of 90 minutes. And... If you had a multiphasic approach um, and not that long ago, you'd probably sleep between 10, 8, 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. because that's when the deeper sleep stages are normally revealed and then be active from that point on, midday period, 
late afternoon. So it may sound a bit strange, but um, I think when you chop your day up into four phases, midnight in those particular periods, and then you you take what would be your most natural chronotype wait time, then you look at your most consistent wait time, uh, if there is one, and if you're working night shifts and everything. But you start there, chop your day up into 90-minute slots. You'll get 16 timings, four phases of the day, based on your most consistent wait time and your natural wait, your natural chronotype wait time. And then as you look at your schedules and they shift around, those timings and those phases don't change, but you just move your recovery opportunities in and around that 24-hour rolling process. Matt Walker says we should avoid napping after 3 p.m. And you say a nap a nap between 5 and 7 can actually prove beneficial. So will a, a late nap like this supplement or disrupt our nocturnal cycles? Well, they, that's why it's always a little bit, uh, you know, it's, it's always a little bit misleading when you're trying to apply it. What that's doing is, is if you apply that to the get your eight hours at night, that's what you do. Then if you're not getting the quality of recovery from that eight hour period because it's disturbed and everything else and then you try and nap right at late afternoon you're napping because of poor sleep quality not because it's part of your overall recovery activity so you wouldn't want to do it because that's going to disturb your 10 or 11 o'clock sleep time right but if you're if you're actually going to work at 11 o'clock at night and you're working through the night, then none of that applies, right? <laughs> it's only when you, if you look at it in a, in a context of this person sleeps for eight hours every night, that's what they plan to do. And napping late afternoon is always going to be negative because it's being applied to that. But how many people, I have never met anybody who sleeps eight hours all the way through one block seven days a week, three, six, five. I don't know who does that. And you mentioned CRPs or these controlled recovery periods. Now, is this just taking a break from technology and from work or it doesn't have to be a nap, right? I think you mentioned in the interest, it's like what I've come to learn looking back is that what I was doing was try- redefining what sleep and recovery was all about and how to created a definitive approach so if you sort of stop thinking about sleep in that sort of perception you have now and think about human recovery performance mental and physical recovery recovery activity these kind of words and cycles and rhythms and patterns and then you also think well napping is is negative snoozers for losers because what you do is you're catching up on a poor recovery approach your brain just takes over. And if you imagine humans can fall asleep behind the wheel of a car or a truck on an autobahn or motorway in a fatal situation, why would you do that? Because your brain just takes over. So right times, right places within that 24-hour cycle, all you want to do is present the opportunity like a 30-minute window late afternoon, 30-minute window mid-afternoon, or if you're on cycles, 2 o'clock in the morning, or you're just always doing it and you, you're always thinking controlled recovery periods rather than napping or trying to sleep. The more that becomes part of your almost subconscious approach. So whatever changes, you're always looking for little two or three minute micro controlled recovery periods where you just point the brain in a different direction just for a few minutes, just because that's what it'll start processing instead of that. You start finding all little things about light and being not always outside, but maybe there's other ways you can keep that light um, serotonin levels up. So when you think about these little CRPs, 30 minutes, it's nothing more than vacant mind space. Um, You're trying to keep away from tech. You know, if you're sitting on a bench outside or sitting on a chair, listening to music, visualization, sensory, whatever it is we're doing is saying I allocate, you know, Within my schedules, I allocate a bit of time for me at the right points. And what happens is the more you do it, you never stop doing it. You always do it, is that then your brain quite happily gets a nice rhythm and pattern about this. And sometimes it will give you a nudge and say, 
likely to microsleep you in that 30 minute period and you just get that little nudge and think maybe somewhere a little bit more quiet and private would be a nice idea um but even if it doesn't get a nudge you still do it meditation mindfulness anything you know when some people sort of nick you're an elite sports sleep coach you must have you must sleep you know for eight hours every night brilliantly and all that sort of stuff i said i stopped thinking about that a long time ago there is just a little technique in my back pocket which is all about cycles. I've got the things in my head because 6.30 wake time is mine. That's the start of my daytime. And that's when I kickstart my day with lots of light. And sometimes I'm sleeping between 12.30 and 6.30, which is four cycles and six hours. But sometimes it shifts to three cycles. I will drop in little moments midday, definitely one late afternoon all the time because I'm, a, I'm an AMA. And I don't want to be going to sleep at eight, nine o'clock at night in this 24-7 world. So you sort of my five cycles is four cycles nocturnal, shorter period, into 6.30, 30-minute cycle late afternoon to take the pressure off port and phase three, which is my evenings when I don't want to rush the approach to the end of my day. And lots of little tiny breaks, you know, just little ones. You, nobody knows I'm even doing them, you know, that just builds up your whole approach. And that's why it's... It's sort of suddenly you just stop thinking about how you're going to sleep on Sunday or how you're going to sleep on Monday or what effects is Wednesday going to be. And it just it just literally rolls. It's the marginal gains. So we we decide whether or not we're AMers or PMers. We start incorporating these CRPs throughout the day. We begin to think about sleep in terms of 90 minute cycles, not hours like everyone else. And you also say that establishing a constant sleep time is the most important. Is that right? Yeah, it, it's sort of, it will make no sense to, you know, because I've worked with a lot of organizations where there's multi-schedules, you know, so three days of this and then three days of that, working with nurses and surgeons and, and pilots where shift things shift around. But the actual 24-hour clock doesn't change. Those timings don't change. The sun rising has nothing to do with that clock. We put that clock on it. It just comes around. So what you're always saying to yourself that if your basic trigger to the day has to be some sort of consistent what would be your most consistent point and you know so if out of any period say you know say a month you could see that the most consistent wait time for you to do your occupation might be 6 30 but on other occasions you might have to get up earlier than 6 30 so once you sort of establish the consistent wait time, then if you do have to wake up early, you just go back a full cycle, say from 6.30 to 5 a.m. And if you had to wake up even earlier than that, then you'd go back from 5 a.m. to, to 3.30, you know? It's sort of, so it gives you these timings so you, you can see what's going on. And rather than just random, you can start to picture it. So if, if the PMA would probably say, well, if their consistent wait time is the same as the other firefighters in the group, because that's how it is, because everybody's doing the same thing in that sense. But they know that their chronotype wait time would be more like eight, another full cycle along, or even two cycles along into 9.30. That then indicates that you, as a PM chronotype, you've got a consistent wait time of 6.30 like the other firefighters, because that's the job and other timings when you work shifts and stuff, it just moves around. But you also know that you're waking, you're trying to wake at least one or two cycles before your natural one. So what you do to get your start of the day, you have to do certain things where the morning time wouldn't. But when it shifts, and you may be working evening shifts, so the consistent wake time is not about the morning bit, it shifts around. But the key factor is, is never to lose sight that while you move all of these things around, timings and shifts and patterns, the sun will rise at that time every morning, seasonal dependence, irrespective of what you're doing. So it's kind of like the start to the day is key to map out your planner. It doesn't mean to say that that's going to be the start of your day every day and forever. But what you do know is 
There is a start to the day called sunrise. There's an end to the day called sunset. And what you do in and around that process is the more you get more synchronized with that process that will never change, then you can protect yourself from the somewhat crazy schedules that you apply to something that you have no control over. You just need to, you need to become more synchronized with it as best you possibly can. So our constant wake time is the anchor that holds in place your R90 technique. So set one and stick to it when you can. But then our sleep time is flexible and is determined by counting back in 90 minute slots from our wake time. Yeah, you can't force yourself to sleep. You can't just try and sleep. You just can't make yourself to sleep because you just start from the premise that you are a human being with a brain and bodily functions. You've got that sun going around the planet You've got that blue light that triggers these key hormones to make us active and everything else. It's all about rhythm and pattern. And then once you've got that set with your consistent wait time, your chronotype wait time, the 16 timings and the 24 hour rolling process, then that's it. It's gonna be like that for the rest of your life. When you then overlay what you're trying, you're being asked to do or trying to do in around that, the more desynchronized you are with that process, so you're not doing things like little light therapy tools or standing by a window or CRPs, the more you're just ignoring all of that. Well, I'm afraid all that just builds and builds and builds and builds until pretty much you get to a point, which is why mental health and well-being on our planet just seems to be on such a vast increase um, because we, we've just never educated ourselves in school. We've got some great books out there like Matthew Walker's, which, which shows us the importance of, of sleep. But you've, what you've got to do is within certain basic principles, circadian rhythms, chronotypes, sleeping in cycles, they are all the basic principles of human beings how we've slept on this planet all the time. So grab hold of those, use them, because there's never been a time when we needed to not take recovery for granted. And it's right now, and for the forthcoming generation. So if you're a firefighter and you work 24 on, 48 off, and you sleep like shit every third day, say you might only get an hour of sleep or three hours of sleep, and then you have two days off, you think there's enough time in there to recover? I have done this with a lot of individuals um, within exactly the same thing, you know, the, the, um, within police forces where they're the reaction ones and they, they have to be sort of almost like on call all the time. Surgeons in hospitals, I work with a uh, medical university hospital in Knoxville, Tennessee, working with the surgeons, where you're literally wandering around with a pager that just says, any minute now, that's going to trigger this. And the, the mindset and everything is just crazy. So what you do is, however tricky the scheduling is, the technique will find a way for you to do it in the best possible way with, with also the key thing is, is to minimize the impact of those things. Because even when you mention that schedule, it just sounds, how do you do that? But you will find a way around it. And you say trying to catch up on sleep by going to bed earlier than normal or sleeping in later is a waste of time. If you have a really sort of stressful, hectic period, and you've not been able to, to even plan in the recovery because things have just gone mad. You know, and there's lots of examples of that in this global pandemic frontline situation now. So if you really just get pushed beyond the limit, then at some point your brain is going to kick in, right? So it might be that you need a duvet day. It might be that you need to allow your brain to catch up on sleep if it wants, right? So maybe on that day, you still start, you know, there's this consistent start and all this sort of stuff. So maybe, you know, if it was me and I knew this had happened, could see it coming, I would still, whatever happened before, I'd still start my particular day at the same time. I wouldn't make myself fully active if I'm going into my occupation, but I would fuel up and hydrate and, do a few things, bowel and bladder, just so those things are in place. And then I might go back to the bed and just relax and maybe put an alarm on for a 90-minute period or maybe two 90-minute periods, depending on what I've already learned coming into that period, right? So please make some assumptions. 
and, and I would just relax. And if my brain wants to take me into more sleep, it will. But I, want to get, I don't want to roll onto it too much. So catching up for me is knowing that in the course of the next seven days, if you think five cycles a day and you're 7.5 hours, but you can chop it up. Well, that's five a day. That's five cycles a day. That's a lot of little short recovery periods. So that's 35 cycles in seven days, five a day. So that might be 28 back-to-back 90-minute cycles nocturnally, boosted by another seven shorter 30-minute cycles slotted in in various places. All the little minor little recovery breaks go on anyway. So if I'm looking ahead and I can see that I'm going to get those 35 cycles, then I'm absolutely fine. If I wander into it and things start to change that, and you start looking, oh, wow, it's going to drop way down to like 20 back-to-back 90-minute cycles and loads more shorter ones, then it probably indicates that you're going to have to take the, the first opportunity you can to create a little bit more space for your brain because it may need to catch up. But the principle to answer your question is, if you can hear me now, is once you get this into a really subconscious approach, there's no need to catch up, going to bed earlier, sleeping in later, unless it's a predetermined choice because something's, you're not going to be able to achieve your ideal in that sense. But I always believe that the more you start, which is the problem with schedules, the more you start to catch up and go to bed early and changing timings, and basically you're just asking the brain to continually keep adapting. It really doesn't know what's going on. There's no rhythm or pattern to it. So it's quite happy to adapt and adjust to how you're planning in your cycles every 24 hours because you're doing it in a really sort of natural human way. But if you suddenly go, you normally go to sleep at 12 o'clock at night, then you suddenly go to bed at nine o'clock at night, or you wait, you know, you put the alarm on for 10 o'clock in the morning instead of 6.30, you're just messing the whole thing up. And that's not what it's about. It's a completely natural circadian rhythm, human function thing that the more you, the more you, you don't have to follow it specifically because that's not probably possible for all of us. But within your own little world, the more you've got these little hidden recovery blind spots to synchronize yourself with that process the best you can, that's your key to success always. Because if we've been sleeping less than normal, our brains will actually drop us into REM for longer and earlier cycles because it's that important to us. Yep, it is. It's um, the more you get into this mindset of should be the healthiest, fittest, most knowledged human population that's ever walked this planet. You know, we have this sort of crazy desire to just push ourselves to the ultimate limits without a second thought to the consequences. So if this needs to happen, we'll just create that shift pattern and then we'll do that. But we won't even think about the human beings doing it, like creating some space so they can take a little 30-minute cycle out at the right time in the right place to create the recovery, all that sort of stuff. just doesn't go on. And that's why it's been fascinating elite sport. They just keep changing things like mad and then suddenly realise they just can't do it like that anymore. And uh, one of the biggest problems with the surgeons... Uh, within the US in that particular sense is, is the amount of surgeons who go through the process of their seven-year, once they've got all their studies together and college, and then they go on this seven-year journey to become fully graduated. While they're on that journey, they're actually working inside the hospital and studying. And what they were saying was a growing number, of, um, and a significantly growing number, of the surgeons dropping out at year four, year five, year six, even year seven, and not going into the industry because they'd just been burnt out. They couldn't do it. It was just too much pressure. So it's kind of like we're investing all this time trying to create surgeons, but we're just losing them along the journey. And I, I don't know, you know, I see this in so many areas where people just simply don't choose to go and do really key occupations like police forces and firefighters and medical professions and others because the demands on that job right now is just too much. You know, the, the suicide rates, the burnout, the addictions, 
all that sort of stuff and dropping out the system and relationships and everything else. It's just like, why would I choose to go and do a job that is probably going to destroy me? Something that I had never heard about before reading your work is one sleeping position better than the other. Yeah, because I, I again, you know, I just became interested in sort of what what on earth is a chronotype? Would it have be able to use that effectively in that way? Sleeping in cycles—that's interesting because that's a much easier way to do that with that. And so the other one was, you know, when you start going down that road, human beings on the planet sleeping outside. Electric light wasn't that long ago. And before then, we did it like this. That's interesting. So you do come across this little thing that, you know, it's a bit like going camping and mountaineering when you get outside and just in your tent or anything else, you become so aligned to the circadian rhythms of light and that you get really sort of feel absolutely great. But there's no fancy mattresses. There's no fancy things or, you know, bedrooms. You know, it's just a tent and something on the floor. And so you get all caught up with this. And I think that one is really key. I just realized, uh, reading about it, that on the opposite side to your dominant side in a fetal position, because the opposite side to your dominant side is less sensitive, the muscles and joints, because it's all about balance. You're able to protect your heart and genitals with your dominant side, your arm and your leg free to protect yourself if there was any danger. Okay, that seems to make sense. Curled up, opposite side to your dominant side. If you're ambidextrous, the side you're going to hit me with. So I'm curled up like that, and I'm outside, you know, backpack under the neck. And for my brain, why does it want you to do that? Why does that seem most natural to a human? Well, actually, if you want to reveal those deeper sleep stages when you are the most vulnerable as a human being, so I could come in your bedroom, play with your hair, play with your ears. You wouldn't even know I was there. In light sleep stages, not the deeper sleep stages, the REM ones, I wouldn't even get through your front door. So what you're saying is that outside, you know, the, the, we're ticking boxes, you know, we've left the fire on a little bit just to distract predators. We're curled up, you know, we've got our belongings close by or right there. We're, we're on the opposite side to the dominant side because we're probably lying on the floor or it's hard. So if you're going to get any sort of respite, don't sleep on your right on the other side because that's far more sensitive. Everything's protected, heart and genitals. And if for any reason, as your brain is taking you down into those deeper sleep stages when you're that most vulnerable and it's only a little short respite, if there's any reason that it won't want to do that is because you've, you're not in the right position to be able to rack to any fear. So that's why I've always been fascinated by that one. And pretty much that's how kids dive onto mattresses and beds. And it, um, once you start thinking along those lines, when you're ever looking at, you know, so the R90 technique coaches people to sleep on the side of mountains, you know, sleep on the floor, you know, a race across America on a mountain bike for 13 days. It's just bike, stop, hop off, 20 minutes, floor, back on, go. You know, for, for 13 days, single-handed round-the-world sailors. We're in parents bringing children into the world. When you look at all of those factors, it really does bring it down to how many things are you doing that are even close to a natural human recovery performance approach? And how many things are you doing every day that is actually completely counterproductive to that process? So if you could just change a few of them, you could see a paradigm shift in your approach. And one of them could just be, you know, um, I'm, a, I'm an AM, morning type, and I'm right-handed. So I am right-handed, fetal position, opposite side is left side, and I'm a morning type. So if I was going to choose a regular sleeping partner, I would choose a PMA who's left-handed because I'm able to look after my partner in the phases of the day through the morning. The PMA's got that characteristic to help us through the whole 24 hours. And because when we're in a bed, just standing at the foot end, if we're both looking at the bed and I'm on the right side and they're on the left side of the bed look from the foot end, is when we've stopped kissing and cuddling and the sex and everything else and all that love stuff, which we adore about regular sleeping partner, 
when we get into a sleep state, we just turn away from each other. So I will turn onto my left side in a fetal position facing out. They will turn onto their right side in a fetal position setting out. And then we'll just wake at some point later on and be happy. But if one of us is always sleeping on that night, they're moving around, mocking about, creating disturbances and all sorts of things. So it's just all these little factors that once you start thinking about a sort of an ideal sleeping position, it takes you off into all sorts of a journey. Why do I use pillows? You know, I actually want to get a really nice balance. What is this pillow there for? You know, it's nice to have loads of pillows on the bed, but if the surface releases to my medical body shape, in a fetal position, balanced neck vertebrae and spine, and just releases into the layers, and there's no gap for me to put a pillow between my head and the sort of mattress surface, for example, then when I move on to my front for a bit of respite in a free fall position, my neck is twisted at right angles, but if I've got a pillow there, I try and get rid of it and go right to the edge of it. When I jump back on my back for a bit of respite, and take that pillow that was filling a big gap here, blocking off the airways, shifting the neck up, dragging air in through, mouth breathing, hydrating, all that sort of stuff. It's sort of like, well, if the surface just released to my body shape, fetal position, opposite side to dominant side, as if I don't need a pillow, then basically my choice of pillow would be far more considered. It would be extremely shallow and nothing more than that. And it's trying to wander into that journey, but, uh, you know, whoever's got the dominant position, sometimes just shifting a couple to the other side of the bed because they just didn't realise it can be quite dramatic in the level of recovery that they get. And then for the post-sleep routine, what would we do upon waking to set ourselves up for a day in an unrushed way? People get too focused on pre-sleep routines and their value. There are some key triggers about what you do in that sort of final cycle two cycles moving into that you know targeted sleep time that can be key they're nothing more than moving warm to cool and light to dark and bowel and bladder so it's those sort of little things that you want to be focused on other things can help to help sort of get that chill out type of mindset download whatever it might be but they will be ineffective unless you're warm to cool bowel and bladder light to dark right the post sleep is the one i think is has been the most successful and that's when you're talking about ams and pms you've got those little timings what do you do in the first sort of 60 90 minutes of your day of the first cycle so mine's between 6 30 and 8 o'clock so i effectively have the unique opportunity to to be able to plan my days that I do not become an elite sports sleep coach until 8 a.m. or onwards. From 6.30, my start of the day is totally focused about bringing me and my brain into the world in the most effective, consistent way so that when we start with our challenges for the rest of the day, uh, you know, me and my brain has had a really good kickstart. So the most important thing is if you can't use natural sunrise and daylight to stimulate your wake, then you have to use curtains and blackout blinds, seasonal changes. If you do, then you need to have what's called a dawn wake simulator lamp in your bedroom because it's not natural for the human being to be woken in the dark. It's the sun that triggers this sunrise. So just putting the alarm on, you're in darkness, that can help your process of going into sleep and staying in a sleep state, but it won't help you to wake so a little dawn wake simulator lamp that produces 10,000 lux, which is the way you measure light, but that means it's relative to the average exposure if you're outside as a human being in a much higher level of lux, could be 80 to 100,000 on a normal day from daylight. Um, so these little things do 10,000 lux, which is just creating your average exposure throughout the day. So little dawn wake simulator, you know, it comes on at six o'clock, um, 5.45, 6 o'clock, I set it for. It starts to bring that light into the room. It's creating sunrise process. And I wake completely naturally, switch the alarm off. And when I open the curtains, it could be dark or it could be sunny, depending on the seasons. But I'm controlling that situation. And it's really important because that level of light 
creates the serotonin that tells the brain to unsuppress everything. So bladder is normally very easy for most. Bowel is sometimes not for most, um, unless they've got the time to allow this process to kick in. Definitely hydrating the brain up again and the body. Also fueling up and getting rid of waste. So you're carrying the good stuff around and feeding off that. Little mental challenges can be anything from ironing a shirt, things like taking a dog for a walk or going for a little walk or whatever it might be, just doing something. You don't have to be rushing off to the gym or anything else. And what it is, is that what I'm doing is really concentrating that, that I have got a start to my day, whether it starts at 6.30 in the morning or it starts at 9 o'clock at night because I'm working shifts or whatever it is, there is a thing about my start to the day. And particularly for PMers, you know, it's kind of like the AM and the PMer, they live 30 minutes away from the fire station. Let's use that example. And the PMer, and they both have to be there for say, let's use say nine o'clock, right? 9 a.m., both people have to be um, at the center. So the AMers probably woken up at six or 6.30, fueled up, hydrated, challenges, loads of light and everything else, and in a completely unrushed way, and arrives at work and ready to go. The PMA was probably still snoozing in their bed at 27 minutes past eight, trying to grab every last second out of being woken up too early. They probably won't have breakfast. They'll probably grab some nutritional bar or coffee, whatever it is, maybe not even get all the functions going, and arrive, you know, 30 minutes later at the fire station and, and try to crack on with their day, dragging that process around with them all the time. Do you have a recommendation for those lamps? Uh, there's two companies, Philips. I think everybody knows them, Philips Electronics. I think the easiest with is just light therapy tools or dawn wake simulators. There's another company called Lumi, which is L-U-M-I-E.com. Um, but you can have a look around. Uh, it's very much has always been driven towards the sort of seasonal affective disorder because of daylight saving time shifts. Yep. So depending on where you are on this planet, we move the clocks around, change our whole relationship with light and dark. And I really hope that the next generation gets rid of that because it wasn't created for human performance, but creates more problems than anything with that shift in our relationship with the light. The sun's not changed. It's just our behavior with it because we shift the clocks. It's, it was always reflective about seasonal affective disorder and sad. What is clear to us now is that the under and overexposure to this level of quality of light, which you only get from blue light at 10,000 lux or more in little sparky moments, is that can have an enormous effect on your everyday approach from the point of wake into midday, early evening, then shifting to red light, yellow light, amber light, because those lights create the melatonin. You're still active. Blue blocker glasses is another one. It's not about stopping you using your, keep using your tech. It's actually balancing to make sure that you've got a couple of little things, like a little transportable lamp, something on your desk, something in your bedroom, you've got something you can, you've got with you maybe, um, or something in the station that you can just go and sit next to while you're eating your sandwich for a couple of minutes. You know, it's all these little tiny things and sometimes the blue blockers can help, you know, when it's um, just helping the evenings just to help bring everything down into the melatonin world. So those don't, you don't have to have a problem to use them. You don't have to be affected by seasonal affective disorder. You don't have to feel anything. But you just have to say to yourself that all the light around you when you're inside is completely different to the light that's outside. And trying to get that nice balance is absolutely key for you to be able to keep your mood, motivation, anxiety levels, performance factors, appetites, bodily functions, dealing with anxiety and stress, difficult moments, what, how your brain and you process that is, you know, you get, get the light into your world in the right balanced way with the knowledge of everything else. That's a game changer. We're mimicking thousands of years of waking up with the natural light and going to bed next to the campfire. <laughs> it's sort of, I know, I know you've read through the book and it was sort of, I think 
that's the sort of fascinating thing is a lot of people say have said to me um it's now in 16 languages around the world and still being published by new countries it was just it sort of they always say to me like you know i, I read or listened to your book and i thought i kind of know all this is my thought in my head is that that all seemed to make sense that actually as if i knew about it already but then I'm not doing anything about it. The way you just described it was just beautiful, wasn't it? It's just, what has actually changed? Nothing. Humans, bodily functions, brains, two key hormones, everything. The sun rolling around the planet that triggers everything on this planet. Our ability to sleep anywhere, anyway, on all sorts of times, you know, in northern, southern hemispheres, really hot countries, you know. There's no point telling somebody who lives in Ethiopia when it's like 40 degrees and hardly drops ever to think about 16 to 18 degrees for your bedroom. It's like an eating too late and getting your eight hours when you're talking to somebody. So it just sort of goes, the more you get in your own little way into that little world and you can make those little changes in your approach, then... uh, it's, it's almost, you know, I've, a lot of people have said it's, it's like a paradigm shift in my approach to recovery. And I wished I'd have known this when I was in my adolescent years with that little bit of knowledge because I, could, I wouldn't necessarily think that my life would have been a lot different. But maybe there was certainly, if I had this approach and this knowledge and this understanding, which is all basic stuff back then, I think, you know, I've really, really could have had a probably a far more productive decision-making relationships. All sorts of things could have been maybe made with better consideration. So whilst I can look back and think, wow, I wish I had this then, what I can do is get hold of it now and influence as many people as possible, including myself, and have a very productive, you know, career and the rest of my life and, if, if kids come along that process, wherever you are in that process, I'm certainly going to make sure that we apply the same things to our kids, us as parents, and don't make the same mistake again, because this should be talked about at school level, because it's that fundamental. I second that. All right, Nick, if you'd be so kind as to share what's on your shelf, are you reading anything good right now? The book I'm currently reading is called Super Life uh, by Darren Ollion, and it's a superfood thing. I watched a little documentary with him and uh, Zac Efron. And uh, I think like there's a lot of things around it. Just thought, you know, maybe my little journey coming out of, you know, the lockdown pandemic and everything else is, is to stop talking about things in certain areas of my life and actually get on with making them happen. And if you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? There's so many, isn't there? But I think... The one thing that probably would be interesting to have a drink with probably Neil Armstrong, because as a human being, they've gone somewhere that I'm never going to go to or whatever. But that sort of little experience of something that's completely unusual as human uh, achievement uh, to be able to to go into that. But I'm afraid I'm going to have to. I lost my father when I was 17 and he was a great innovator, engine technology and stuff like that. And I think it would be great to be able to have a chat with him so we could cross his journey and my journey since he passed away. Because I suppose trying to redefine something and be a bit innovative, but maverick and everything else was exactly his characteristics and DNA in the world of um, engines and Formula One and racing cars and stuff. So I think he would have to be the one. I love that. All right, Nick, if people want to find you, they can go to sportsleepcoach.com and follow you on social at sportsleepcoach. I'll have links to your books in the show notes. Is there anywhere else you want people to go to connect with you? No, I think that's absolutely fine. You know, when they get onto the website and everything else, they can they can follow us all over the place and, and get as much as they go. Just just be inspired to um, just be inspired to take some steps. Read my book, listen to the book. Go on, listen to social media, the audible course on the site, you know, and just be, it's not a, it's not a difficult journey. You'd be absolutely amazed 
by subtle little simple practical and achievable changes can have such an effect on the way you feel every day and for the rest of your life so good luck with that journey and um it's been a pleasure to be on your your session today all right everybody thank you so much for listening be sure to follow me on social media at primalosophy and if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter sunday goods you can find the link in the show notes shikoba